Good to have you here at River West Church. Great to be with you. My name is Guy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And it's my privilege to open the Bible with you in a moment and get into Scripture. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers will come and give you a Bible. Uh, in my role here at the church as uh, mentoring pastor for leaders, um, it, it, sometimes I have the opportunity to do that role, not just here, but in other parts of the world. I came back just a few weeks ago from being in Rwanda for a couple of weeks and teaching at the African College of Theology in Kigali. And it was an amazing time, it was an amazing experience. Um, I had the privilege of teaching there uh, 35 students, leaders from Africa, and my course was poetic literature. So I got to teach uh, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Did all of that in two weeks, uh, three hours a night, 10 nights, and so it was intense. But it was a highlight experience of my life. And one of the reasons why is because I had these beautiful students, the windows were open, and right outside the window there was an African choir that was practicing. And if you've ever heard an African choir, I mean, this is like you've died and gone to heaven, the angels are singing. And so this, like we're studying the book of Psalms, and the African choir is singing, it's coming in the window, and I'm like, boom. It was so amazing. It's just a great, great Time. So thank you for your support. You know, African New Life, who is the, uh, the organization that has this College of Theology, they speak often of River West Church. We have a great partnership with them. And so every time I go, they're, oh, you're from River West Church. Thank you, River West Church, for your partnership with us. So I want to thank you for that. I had the opportunity to go to Bujasera and to preach at our sister church there that we've been helping for several years now. And Pastor Kayumba and his wife Harriet, some of you might know them, they're amazing people, uh, went out to lunch with them afterwards. So one church service, one lunch, eight hours. This is the way they roll in Africa. <laughs> Three and a half hour church service, three and a half hour lunch. Okay, it was amazing. At one point in that lunch, Pastor Kayumba began, he got kind of teary, and he said, I want to thank River West Church. Please send my gratitude to River West Church because if it weren't for River West Church, I would not be alive today. He got very, very sick, and our church paid for these medications and for him to get treatment and evaluation. And he basically said, if it weren't for your church, I wouldn't be alive. And his wife was tearing up. And we all held hands at this lunch table. And um, I said, you guys, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone. You, I know you have a lot of friends here in Africa, but you need to know you have a friend in America, River West Church. We're standing with you. And they were so thankful. And so we hope to bring Kayumba here someday. And he, he said, I want to come to the church and I want to thank everyone in person. So we're working on that, see if we can get him here. But thank you, River West Church, uh, for your generosity. Thank you for um, what you're doing here and in different places of the world. It's, it's a privilege to be involved in it. Now we open to the Gospel of Luke. Do you have your Bible? Luke chapter 1, where we pick up the story of a man named Zechariah and his wife, whose name is Elizabeth, and his son, who is not Zach Jr., the son's name is 
John. And soon enough in the Gospel of Luke, we will hear lots of other names as well. Names which are only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 2, we'll meet Simeon and Anna in the courts of the temple. Later in Luke, we'll meet a man named Simon the Pharisee who has a very awkward moment with Jesus at a dinner at his house. A guy named Zacchaeus, who was a very wealthy tax collector, Luke tells us that he climbed a tree so that he could, he was a short guy, Luke says, so he had to climb a tree so he could see Jesus when Jesus was passing by and he called out to Jesus. And of course, there's always Cleopas in Luke 24. Remember Cleopas? It's this guy, nobody knows who Cleopas is. Like, who is this guy? Why is Cleopas in the Bible? Luke 24, Cleopas and his friend are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus Christ, on Easter Sunday, the risen Lord, appears to them. And we have the longest resurrection appearance recorded in most number of verses anywhere in the New Testament. And who had the honor of that experience? Cleopas. Who is Cleopas? Nobody knows. Except Luke. Luke calls him out. And if we're to follow that pattern and go from the Gospel of Luke now to the book of Acts, because Luke also wrote Acts and he just continued that story, you'll find in the book of Acts more and more and more names and stories given to us. Cornelius, the powerful Roman centurion. A lady named Tabitha, also called Dorcas, Luke wants us to know. She had two names, who used to handcraft garments for her friends and relatives. She was greatly loved, and she was raised to life again. Amazing. A girl named Rhoda, who was a slave girl, who simply came to the door and opened the door when Peter was knocking at the door. But Luke names her, and we could go on and on and on. Luke is extremely interested in people. Named people. He names over 45 individuals in his gospel and the book of Acts. Calls him out, gives us a little piece of their story. He's interested in people. He's interested in their stories. But especially as their story is transformed by the larger story of the gospel. It is the intersection of individual stories and the story of the gospel that Luke is fascinated by. And isn't that why we're here this morning? Because you have a story. We're not here just to learn a religious lesson about Christianity or the history of spirituality or the historical Jesus. We're here today because we each have a story and we want to know how that story intersects with the story of the gospel. And when it does intersect with the story of the gospel, how might that actually transform our lives? Maybe you know someone in this room and you could say, I know there's a story. That's why I'm here today, because I've heard a story. I've heard a testimony. Maybe you were at the baptism and you heard a testimony. And you say, wow, that's, that's powerful stuff. You see, that's the kind of stuff that really fascinates Luke. And of all of the people in Luke and Acts... There's one person who leads the way, and his name is Zechariah. Zechariah leads the way. He's the headliner in, in the Gospel of Luke, and I love that. He's really the perfect candidate 
to be the first story that's told. Do you know why he's the perfect story? Because he began in a place of cynical unbelief, but he became a full-on believer in the story of the gospel. There was a transformation that happened in his own life when he first heard the message of the gospel that God was working in the world and even it's going to work in his life. He did not believe it. That's earlier in chapter 1. Studied that a couple weeks ago. He didn't believe it. And because he didn't believe it, God took away his ability to speak. It's like God said, you get a time out. <laughs> I want you just to think about that for a minute. And he did not speak for nine months. Nine months later, he was given the ability to speak once again. That's the story we're going to look at today. Look at it in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 57. And we'll catch up on this story. I'm going to read Luke 1, 57 through 66. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. You'll remember from earlier in the gospel that that an angel actually appeared to Zechariah and said, your wife is going to bear a child. But they're both very elderly. It's kind of like the Old Testament with Abraham and Sarah. And he's like, how can that happen? That cannot be. And he actually didn't believe. And so God said, well, you're not going to be able to speak. But it is going to happen. So he got a time out. And her neighbors, in verse 58, and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. So this is a regular occurrence in Israel. Male child, eighth day, circumcision ceremony, and the friends and the neighbors come over. So it's a party. It's like a religious celebration. It's an observance. It's a party. It's a family gathering. It's a neighborhood gathering. This is what happens, and everybody shows up to this occasion and it says that they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Don't you like it? They're arguing. They're like, no, that's not a good name. What are you talking about? What, what are you even thinking? You're crazy. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. I don't know how you sign that out. It's like, I don't know how you do that, but... Somehow they did. They made signs. So he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. These are ominous things that are happening. Now, I want you to notice something very carefully, that it says that when his tongue was loosed in verse 64 and that he spoke blessing God, the next verse says fear came upon all the neighbors or amazement. Everyone was amazed. It's very important for us to recognize a couple of things. Number one, he hadn't spoken in nine months. And number two, the reason they were amazed was not just because he spoke, but it was what he spoke that amazed them. It electrified them. Some of them were, were struck with fear. 
by, it was what he spoke, not just that he spoke. So we have to insert between verse 64 and 65, where it says he blessed God and then everyone was amazed. You have to insert what he said. Now, what he said when he spoke, we pick up in verse 68 and all the way through 80. It's called the Song of Zechariah. So it's like Mary's song, Zechariah's song, and I don't think he sung it, but it's like, well, what do you call this thing? It's, it's a word of praise. It's a word of prophecy. It's a prayer. It's a blessing. He's blessing God. So they just call it the song. And you can see it's sort of laid out in our Bibles as poetry because it's this amazing, amazing thing that he said. So we're going to read what he said, and we're going to ask the question, why was it that when the people heard this, they were so amazed? They were so moved by this. What was it about this thing that he said that shook them in such a way? Well, let's read on and let's see. Now it says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The people were amazed. We'll just pause there. People were stunned by this. This is not what they expected. Totally unexpected. I think the people probably expected Zechariah to tell his own story. He hadn't spoken in nine months. I would expect Zechariah to say, hey, everybody, <laughs> Let me take you back to what happened in my life nine months ago. I was in the temple, an angel showed up. He said he was Gabriel. He made this promise, but I didn't believe him, and so I couldn't talk anymore. You know what I mean? Like, Zechariah would tell his own story, but he doesn't tell his own story. I would expect Zechariah to pick up that baby and say, look, everybody, it's a boy. Look, here's my son. This is so amazing. I mean, I have a son. We never thought we'd have a son. What a great story. We have a son now. Maybe you'd expect something like that. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? Before he tells his own story, he tells the story of the gospel. The place he starts was the unexpected place. He started with the story of God, the story of the gospel. And then... He related that story to his own story and to the story of his son and to the story of what God was doing all around him in the world. And the people are amazed by this. Essentially, he tells the history of the Old Testament in 11 verses. 
If you're paying attention and you read through carefully what he's saying, now remember, he had a long time to think about it. He had nine months to think about it. <laughs> you know, he's, what am I going to say when I can talk? What am I going to say? I'll tell everybody about Gabriel. I'll tell everybody the story. But the more he thought and the more he reflected on Scripture, the more he realized what was happening, all of a sudden his focus began to change from himself, from his own story, his own experience. Now the focus is on God and what God has promised and what God is doing. That story is the gospel story. And you know something about the gospel that you might not realize? The gospel story does not begin in the New Testament. It actually begins in the Old Testament. And if you're paying attention to what he said, you'll recognize he goes through the whole history of Israel. Did you hear Abraham in there? Abraham's in there. Abraham, that's 2,000 years before this moment. He goes, he rolls the tape back 2,000 years. God made a promise to Abraham. That was a gospel promise. He said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a gospel promise. He went all the way back. He rolled the tape back and he spoke. He really made reference to the book of Exodus. Did you know that? Take a look at it in chapter one. In verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Do you know that that language is language from the book of Exodus? God visited his people and redeemed them. In the Old Testament, where does that happen? Book of Exodus. Do you know when God shows up for a visit, things happen? You know, it's not just a friendly house call. God shows up and stuff happens. This is terminology from the Old Testament. God visits his people to rescue them. Let me show you a verse from the Old Testament. Book of Exodus, chapter 3. In verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good land. And he goes on from there. God says, I have heard. I have seen. I know the sufferings. I know what they're going through. And best of all, he says, I have come. That's God visiting. God, God says, I have come. I have come. Amazing. Electrifying. Why? Because when Zechariah spoke these words, he spoke them in complete faith. Total faith. He went through the history of Israel not as a lesson in history, not just as a history lesson, but as a proclamation of the very heart of God. And the way that God would work in the lives of his people right now in the present. In fact, this word visit, when he says God has visited his people, that word shows up again at the end of his song. Take a look at it in chapter 1 and verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, I love that phrase. That, to me, is my favorite phrase in this whole song of Zechariah. The sunrise will, what? Visit us 
So for you literary scholars, you know this is a literary frame. At the beginning and the end of this message, the word visit appears. But Zechariah isn't just giving a history lesson. You know, everybody in the room could have recited this lesson. Don't you think everyone in Israel knew? Oh, yeah, Abraham, got it. Exodus, got it. Oh, yeah, David, son of David, got it. Prophets, sure. Everybody could have recited the history lesson. But suddenly, when Zechariah speaks at this time, He's speaking it as if it's a window into the heart of God and the work of God that's available right now, right here, right now for God's people. And everyone's electrified. They're amazed. They're like, oh, someone's speaking the gospel, the word of of the story of the gospel in faith as if it's for us right now. That's what Zechariah was doing. He was a transformed man. And you know, transformed men and women tend to transform situations around them when the story of the gospel has, has come to the forefront of their mind and of their thinking. And that's exactly what was happening in his life. Did you see the word redeem? God has visited in verse 68 and redeemed his people. You know what the word redemption means? It means to rescue at a very high price, to rescue or save at a high cost. That's what it means. And you think about it, the rescue of God's people in the book of Exodus, what a rescue. In the theology of of the book of Exodus, there's a high price too. I won't go into that right now, but rescued out of slavery, how amazing. Do you know that for the rest of the history of Israel, that redemption became the defining truth of who they were, which is why it was so difficult for them to see the Romans occupying their land because they're like, no, we've been redeemed at the highest cost. We've been set free. This makes no sense. How can we be oppressed anymore? Because it was a matter of their identity. It's what defined them. Set free at a high cost. I heard a story about a man in London, his name was Philip Lawrence. He was a headmaster of a school, equivalent of a junior high high school. It's in a rough part of town. One day there was a gang that came down and was attacking one of the students, a 13-year-old boy. And Philip Lawrence went outside to protect this child. And he stood between the gang and the child and someone stabbed him and he died. That man died. The child lived, the headmaster died. And it was pointed out, for the rest of that child's life, that will be a defining moment in his life. My life was saved at the highest cost. You can never escape it. You can never wash it from your memory. It's going to be a defining reality for his life. This is the reality of the gospel. It is the defining reality of who we are as Christians. God sent his son into the world at the highest price to redeem us. From what? From oppression, from darkness, from our sins, from guilt. That's the gospel. And can you see how amazing this is, what Zechariah does? Like right out of the gate? Can you see what Luke is is doing in his gospel right out of the gate? 
He's saying, let me show you the scope of this story. Let me show you the scope of the gospel. Let me show you where we're going. And it's electrifying when you see that. All of it is a window into the heart of God. Did you notice the word mercy in this passage? Mercy. It appears two times in verse 72 to show us the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. And then again in verses 77 and 78, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. How amazing is that? Zechariah talks about this story of God. He doesn't do it just as a history lesson. He does it as a window into the heart of God. And the heart of God is mercy or compassion. It's compassion. God cares. He cares. And he speaks to his relatives and his neighbors. And it's as if they can hear Zechariah saying, and that's the mercy he has on you. That's the compassion he has for you. And all these named names in Luke, in the book of Acts, all these characters, men, women, old, young, rich, poor, Jew, Gentiles, and it's mercy, 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 mercy. The heart of God for every single named individual. And Zachariah speaks and the neighbors go, that's for me too. And here we are today. Isn't that why we're here today? Didn't we come here today because we want to know how the gospel story intersects with our story? And aren't you electrified to hear it's the mercy and compassion of God in Christ is real? I love the way that he begins to point to the future in this. Now, I'll show you. This is my favorite part of, of this whole thing. It says in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby... The sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, we just have to park it right there for a minute and let that phrase sink in. The sunrise will visit us. Oh, there's that word visit again. Wouldn't you like to be visited by a sunrise? How cool would that be? <laughs> you know, the sunrise will visit us from where? From on high. It's like this massive, God-sized sunrise is going to come right down into my world and illuminate my life, my darkness, my turmoil. Wow. How amazing is that? When I was a young man, I used to go out fishing with my father. And um, he, he loved fishing. And we would go deep sea fishing. So we're albacore fishing. And we'd go out of Newport Beach, or more often San Diego. And we'd go out 150 miles because the albacore, the warm water, was far out. And so we'd have to get up and leave at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, I was prone to seasickness, unfortunately. But it did not stop anyone from going on these trips. <laughs> and so we would leave at 4 in the morning and go to the bait dock and get the live bait. And then we would head out. And it didn't matter if it was, you know calm sailing or heavy seas because we were going to go after the albacore. And I remember times being out there at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in pitch darkness with heavy seas 
sicker than a dog. All you can see is what the bow light will show, which is the next wave that's coming at you. And the spray is going over the bow. And, you know, of course, I wasn't always looking at the bow because I was in the back of the boat on the other end doing something. And that's my picture of this verse. Because <laughs> you know what I was doing? I mean, I wasn't even a believer. I didn't even believe in God. I was praying. <laughs> Have you ever done that, you atheists in here? <laughs> oh, I never pray. I never pray. I prayed. You know what I was praying for? I was praying for the dawn. I was praying for sunlight. Because when you're pitching on the ocean in the darkness and all you can see is the next wave that's about to crash on you, you're praying for the dawn because when the sunrise comes, it begins to illuminate the sea and you can see the horizon. And when you can see the horizon, it changes your perspective and it doesn't make the seasickness go away, but somehow it makes it better. <laughs> You go, I can see now the horizon. I have a perspective. I have a bigger picture here. That's what I needed. I needed a bigger picture. I'm going to tell you something, friends. You need a bigger picture, and so do I. Here's the beauty of the gospel of Luke and the way it begins. Right out of the gate, God gives us this massive picture. It's a picture that stretches all the way back to Abraham thousands of years, and it stretches all the way into the future. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the sun that has come to rise upon us. It's a massive, massive story. And that's what Zechariah gives us. And then he shows us that John, he didn't even get to his own son until three quarters of the way through. Oh, and by the way, my son, he says, son, you know, you child, You'll be a prophet. You're going to go before and make the way for Jesus, the Savior, to come. So he inserts the story of John into the larger story. And that's why the story of John has so much meaning. It's not just because of John. It's because of Jesus. And what about you? So what's your story? That's our question today. What is your story? What is it that defines your life? That's the question that I want you to ask yourself today. And you know, I've been around quite a few years, and so I've got some stories of my own. I've got some names that I could name, people that have inspired me. I think of old friends that I've known for 45 years, Greg and Barbara Meeks, who lost their 13-year-old daughter to cancer many years ago. And it was a protracted episode of months and months and months, and finally she passed. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of darkness. And they called and they said, will you come and speak at the memorial service? I'm like, of course I'll come. In my heart, I'm thinking, it's going to be hard. And I flew to where they live, got off the plane, went into their living room, and I sat with them. And I said, man, I'm so glad to see you guys. But under these circumstances, I'm, I'm so sorry it had to be under these circumstances. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, the response. And Barbara looked at me and she said, you need to understand we have a larger perspective. 
you need to understand we have a gospel perspective. We believe that our daughter is in heaven. We believe that God has a purpose. We believe that God will use this moment and this day and even this memorial service for his eternal purpose. And it was electrifying. It just electrified me to hear her say it. Because essentially what she was saying is, our lives will not be defined by our loss. Our lives will not be defined by our sorrow or our hurt. That's all real, but that will not define us. What will define our lives is the gospel. There's a larger story, and we live in that story. It's the intersection of the gospel and your story where transformation happens, and that's where life is, and that's what Luke is telling us. It's amazing. Everyone experiences loss. Everyone in this room experiences loss, hardship, disappointment. It's the life that we live in. It's the world that we live in. But is that your story? Does that define who you are? Don't let it. Don't ever let it. If you're defined by hurt or loss, you need a bigger story. And God gives you that in the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you about a new friend that I just met when I was in Kigali a couple weeks ago. I was teaching over there, and there was another church that had sent some teachers as well. And they had a team. They had a teaching team. And I had me. I'm like, next time I'm bringing a team. Sounds like a great idea. They had two pastors and a third guy. And the third guy was not a pastor. He let me know right away, I'm not a pastor. He says, I'm a business leader. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's great. He says, yeah, I'm a business leader. And then I come to find out that he's a super high-powered guy. So he, he's like a divisional president of a Fortune 500 multi-billion dollar company that does work all over the world. And, he, and he's that guy. He's just like, like, like an impossibly talented and gifted human being. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. But then I found out there's more to the story. None of that is what defined his life. He told me his own personal story. As a young, highly talented, successful young man, achieving much, his family, career, he's just on the way to glory and success. None of it was enough. He was successful, 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 empty, empty, empty. So much so that he contemplated suicide. He was actually thinking about taking his life. And the man that he reported to in this gigantic company was a Christian. And that man began to take him under wing and challenge him and say, I want you to read the gospel. And he discipled him and he led him to faith in Christ. And it forever changed his life. Many, many years ago, transformed his life. And you know what I found out? I found out that this man, his name is Steve, that he was not defined by success. He was not defined by his talents or by his achievements. He was defined by the gospel of Christ. It was amazing. So like, you know, he's super successful and does all these things. And then it's like, for good measure, he went to Dallas Seminary and and he got a master's degree in theology too. That's why he was teaching. He's like, this guy, he can do it all. He's amazing. But when you sit down across the table and you talk to him, he tells you his story. He says, no, I was gonna kill myself. Because success is not enough. It's not enough to define your life. His life was defined 100% 
by dedication to Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. The sunrise came and rose upon his life and illuminated everything. And the guy, the guy's amazing. I just was so inspired by this guy. Let me tell you something today. Many of you, you've had a lot of success in your life. You're a very talented group of people. And you're good looking too. <laughs> That's not enough. What is it that defines your life? What's your story? The challenge of Luke is that your life and your story would be defined first by the gospel. And then you find how your story fits in to the story of the gospel. And that's when amazing things begin to happen. What's your story? You know, we live in a culture where every person is told that they are the center of their own story. You make your own story. You make your own way. You live your own dreams. You're the center of the universe. You can do anything you want to, and nobody should ever tell you. And so you become this little center of your own universe. But as the poet said, the center will not hold. Will not hold. And we live in our proud or sad little narrative until we're crushed by the finiteness of our own lives until we come to Christ and the sunrise of Christ's love and mercy and forgiveness and grace and hope begins to shine upon our lives. It's amazing. You know, you come to end of life. End of life. And, and all of a sudden, your story can seem so small, you know. It's like when you're young, you're like, I have a huge story. And then when you're older, it's like, man, maybe it wasn't that big. <laughs> you know, doctor says, you've only got a few months to live. You're like, really? I had so much more that I wanted to do. But in the vast scope of things, what does it matter? That's the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. <laughs> so what's your story? What's your hope? What's the sunrise? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. And this is his gift to you. You don't have to earn it. This is the gift of God to you if you will believe and receive. Let's have the worship team come forward. I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to have communion. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonder of your love and the greatness of the gospel. Thank you for naming names, for caring, Lord, about individuals, the powerful, the weak, the rich, poor, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, and free. Your mercy is for all. Your sunrise is for all of us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, this morning that each person in this room would be someone who stands in the truth of the gospel that their story is placed within that larger story, Lord, of your salvation. So do that, Lord. Speak gospel truth to our hearts, I pray. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.